Turn to Daniel chapter 5. We are moving along in our study of the book of Daniel. Today we're going to cover all of chapter 5, and I want a couple people to read along with me. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. And then if anybody wants to get out their confident read-aloud voice, um, someone reads 17 to 23 and then 24 to 31. Volunteers? Clint is going to do 17 to 23. How about a lady for 24 to 31? Oh, Aaron. All right, well, uh, I'll start us starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the kings of his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. 
when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sits over it whomever he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. You and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the God of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed, clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Amen. Thank you both. Uh, a little bit of historical information to start. For the last few chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar has taken center stage, and then all of a sudden we get to chapter 5, and there's King Belshazzar. And we're told throughout the passage that you know Nebuchadnezzar is his father. Um, but historians believe this does not refer to literal father and son, but more like a descendant. You know, We would say, or the Israelites would have said, our father Abraham. Um, no matter whether it was Isaac or any Israelite. And uh, it's just referring to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was king before him. And in fact, Belshazzar wasn't even the actual king. Uh, His dad was the king, but apparently his dad was gone and left the rule of the kingdom to his son. So he was, in effect, the de facto king, which makes sense, you know, as he's called King Belshazzar. Uh, And it also makes sense of verse 7, who says, if anyone can read this and interpret it, then you'll be third in the kingdom. It's because he wasn't first. He was second. And he couldn't give second place. That was him. He wouldn't give that away. But he would give third. Just under me. You know. All right. Um, So, but it brings up the question, why the big jump then from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar? Uh, What happened to the other kings? You know, are they important? And why don't we hear about them? I don't really know what happened to them. Um, They're lost to history like most everybody else. But at least it clues us into the point, which is, um, or the fact that the point is not chronology. We're not just getting a history here, but it's developing the point that was given earlier in the book, which is God's kingdom is superior over all kings and all kingdoms. And uh, Belshazzar is significant because he is king when Babylon falls. So... That's why they jumped to the end there. Um, the mighty Babylon, which at this time had ruled the world for, you know, a few hundred years, and uh, then it was over. 
you know, now, from our perspective, it doesn't seem very significant at all. To them, no one could ever conquer them, and they would be greatest forever. But, again, we were reminded that this is the way it is with every world power. You know, fleeting glory. And while you're in the middle of it, you think nothing could ever happen to remove us from this glory. But, as history always tells, uh, it's gone. And God's kingdom will never fade. So, uh, three main points I want to make for the rest of the way, with that kind of behind us. Uh, Three major biblical themes that surface here in Daniel chapter 5. Folly, wisdom, and judgment. And uh, I'll show you a number of ways that we can see all of these. First, folly. Of course, when we talk about folly, we're talking about being foolish. Um, Fools always have a negative impact, but especially when they are in leadership, and that is the case here. King Belshazzar is the fool, and we see his folly in at least three ways in Daniel 5. Number one, we see Belshazzar's folly in his flippancy in the face of danger. So the chapter opens with Belshazzar throwing a party, and it closes with Belshazzar being killed and Babylon falling to the Medo-Persians. In verse 30, it says it was that very night. So the very night that Belshazzar threw the party, the very night that he saw the handwriting on the wall, the very night that he got the interpretation from Daniel, the very night he was killed and his kingdom fell. So think about this. Babylon was the great world power at the time. Um, It was fortified by great walls of protection. I mean, that's how you would have been a great world power. You know, like Jericho before, it had these great walls that couldn't be breached. And if the Medo-Persians conquered Babylon that night, there's no way that the Babylonians didn't know. I mean, they were around, right? You didn't just get somewhere quickly in those days. And if there's a traveling horde of warriors, somebody's going to know about it. They're going to have lookouts. They're always going to have that kind of protection. Um, There's no way that Belshazzar didn't know about this. It's just the fact that he didn't care because we're the mighty Babylon. And no one can do anything to us. Um, So we see his folly and his flippancy in the face of danger. Number two, we see Belshazzar's folly in his failure to learn from history. So um, one of the things we see throughout this passage is the language of Nebuchadnezzar, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father, uh, you know, son of Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, that sort of thing. It's like six times throughout the passage. And one of the reasons it's in there is it, it creates a contrast for us between Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king who repented, right? The king who, though he was a fool, uh, was saved and restored to God's wisdom. And when he was the king, he made public changes when God intervened in his life. So in uh, chapter 2, we see that Daniel was promoted after the first dream and its interpretation. And then in chapter 3, if you'll remember, Nebuchadnezzar made it illegal to speak against God uh, after the fiery furnace ordeal. He said, well, only God could do this, and so we're going to make it illegal to speak against God. The whole reason they went in there was they were speaking against Nebuchadnezzar. And he said, no, forget that. It's illegal to speak against God. And then in chapter 4, he put out a public document after the second dream and the subsequent... um, conversion. 
And it was a document, it says in chapter 4, verse 1, that was not only to his kingdom, but to all kingdoms. And he was the leader of the world power. So he's telling everybody in the world about God, about his conversion to God, um, to belief in God, but also just about who he is. And in that, he explained, you know, his former folly, his conversion, but also the fact that no one stands a chance against God. This is a public document sent to all kingdoms. We see in chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. No one can stay his hand. Verse 37, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. That was what Nebuchadnezzar learned. Now, this was in Belshazzar's lifetime. There had been a couple kings in between, but it hadn't been that long. They were like, I don't know, they were on the throne for a couple years each or whatever. And uh, so Belshazzar knew about this, and everyone knew about it because Nebuchadnezzar was king, and he sent out this public document, and everyone was subject to the king. And Daniel says this in verses 22 and 23, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So his kingdom had already made these mistakes before in opposing God, but he didn't learn from history. He did not heed the wisdom and instruction of his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He thought, ah, whatever, you know, good for him. That's a nice little story, but I'm just going to keep going my own way. So we see his folly in that he didn't learn from history, but most notably, we see Belshazzar's folly in that he is mocking God. Uh, these vessels that when, when Jerusalem was conquered, they took the holy vessels from the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had taken them. But even in the height of his folly, he had never used them. Well, Belshazzar was like, you know, it's a good party, but it could be even better. We have this whole reserve China that if we'll just bring out for this special event, uh, drinking from the holy vessels that were taken from Jerusalem. This is an affront to God. This is mocking God. So, Folly and wisdom are uh, major themes throughout the Bible, especially in Proverbs, if you've ever read in there. I mean, these are the two, you know, it's folly versus wisdom. The ultimate theme is the fear of God, but it is the fool who does not fear God, it is the wise man who fears God. And here we see that Belshazzar's biggest problem is that he has no fear of God. If he feared God, he would have had a proper respect for the Medo-Persians, Uh, If he feared God, he would have been a student of history. And instead, he was filled with uh, pride and a lust for pleasure. And he did not fear God. That was ultimately his undoing. And unfortunately, he's not the only one, right? Um, His kingdom was not the last kingdom to lose the fear of God or to never have it in the first place. We live in a country that's making the same mistakes now. I mean, if you look at our entertainment industries, if you look at our institutions of higher learning, if you look at our courts, all you have to do is look at what we celebrate and what we legislate and ask yourself, is that consistent with the fear of God? Is that consistent with folly or with wisdom according to God's word? And we should not think that it's going to go any different for this nation than it did for previous nations. God will be faithful to his people. He was faithful to Daniel. He will be faithful to the remnant. Um, But that doesn't mean that you can just not fear God and mock him and get away with it. 
Babylon was here today, gone tomorrow, and uh, we barely remember. But while the state of our nation should concern us, and, uh, you know, one of our roles in that is to call her to repentance, to God, the greatest concern for us needs to be the church. And to ask ourselves in our own lives, in our church, and in the church at large, is there fear of God in the church? You know, I watched a pathetic little compilation of pastors that was shared on Facebook, and these enlightened men were had changed their mind on their issue on the issue of homosexuality, and uh, their churches have become more open and affirming. And they were just talking about the enlightenment that they had received. Why? Because they fear God. Or because they fear man? Because they're walking in wisdom or they're walking in folly? These are very helpful categories for us as we look on at the the watching world. And as we look on at the church, as so many are leaving in droves to positions that are foreign to the scriptures. And just wait. As the numbers continue to shrink in our country, you know, we're more and more secular, less and less people in church and that sort of thing. As the pressure continues to mount through legislation and uh, just cultural pressures, you know, when it's not popular like it used to be to be a Christian, um, there will be many, even conservative churches, that are going to want to make things more palatable to the masses. You know, we're going to have to give on this or that. And, uh, but God will not be mocked. And Christians and churches in our nation are going to have to count the cost. Do we really believe what the Bible teaches? And we hold it dear. And are, and are we staking our life on it? If not, don't come here on Sunday mornings. Definitely don't come to Sunday school, you know. But just play golf or do whatever. I mean, if it's just a thing, then you can do whatever you want. But if it's true, and it is, then we have to buckle up. And we have to be prepared for the opposition uh, we, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be dismayed. Um, but we can count on the fact that the Lord our God is with us, that he will fight for us, that he will protect us, that he will keep us, that he will be faithful to us, even when all around us is going to pot. Um, we've got people jumping ship on the issue of sexuality just because that's kind of the, the point of emphasis right now, right? That's the point of tension. But what makes us think that those same people aren't going to jump ship on other doctrines, even more central doctrines like the sinfulness of man, the divinity of Christ, God's judgment on sinners, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I mean, these are not um, popular. And so when the heat gets put on those things, those people are going to jump ship on that too. You watch. Fear not. Fear God. The next big point I want us to think about is um, wisdom. We see a measure of wisdom in the queen, and we see great wisdom in Daniel. In verse 1, uh, we're told that King Belshazzar made a feast for a thousand of his political leaders. And of the thousand political leaders at the party that night, it seems that the queen is the only person who learned from history. They, none of them know what to do. They call the wise men and... Uh, you know, they, don't, they just don't know what to do about it. There's a thousand of them in there, plus now the wise men that have been called, the enchanters and magicians and all these people. And, but it's not until uh, the queen comes in that they have any measure of how to move forward. 
So we see a measure of wisdom in the queen, but we, um, we see great wisdom with Daniel. As, uh, as I mentioned before, wisdom is the fear of God. That's the, I mean, ultimately, that's the main theme of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And we see Daniel's fear of God in a couple different ways in the passage. Number one, in verse 17, so Belshazzar is offering wealth and power to anyone who can uh, read the interpretation and tell him what it means. But Daniel replies, keep your gifts and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll tell you what it says. So he's saying, you can't buy these gifts with money. It's kind of like in Acts chapter 8, if you remember, there's, uh, you know, many people are getting converted and the apostles are performing miracles and there's Simon the magician. And Simon the magician makes a profession of faith. He's like, yeah, I'm going with you guys. And then he sees Peter and John doing a miracle. And he asks them, hey, let me give you some money so that I can do what you just did with the Holy Spirit and, and hand the Holy Spirit out like that. And of course, you know, Peter rebukes him. May your money perish with you that you think you could buy the gift of God. Um, and then he, you know, tells him to be concerned for his soul and cry out to God and perhaps he will forgive you. you know? But um, it may not be stated as strongly here, but it's the same thing that Daniel's doing. He's refusing the gift from the king as if to say, listen, you can't buy this. This is from God, but I'll tell you what it says. Um, we also see his fear of God in verse 23. We see this in the boldness and courage that he has to speak clearly to the stupidity of the false gods that Belshazzar has been worshiping, the gods of bronze and iron and wood and stone, uh, which do not see, they do not hear, they do not know. And uh, I want you to notice what he did not say here. He did not say, you know, Belshazzar, we Hebrews believe that there is a different God than these other gods. And we believe that your breath is in his hands. And we believe that you need to honor him. He didn't say that. Uh, I think that's the way we tend to try to defend our faith. We believe that there is another God. We believe that this is what he says. Um, but, as Francis Schaeffer said somewhere, no matter what a man may believe, he cannot change the reality of what is. What is truth? That's the issue. Daniel fears God. He's full of wisdom and he's bold to proclaim it. The truth is, there's only one God, Belshazzar. All of this other stuff, that's ridiculous. Your breath is in that one God's hands. Not, we believe. No, this is it. Your breath is in his hands. You owe him honor and service and worship and you have refused to honor him. There is just a clarity and a boldness in his um, proclamation. So, what's the lesson here? Should we, you know, be like Daniel? Well, yeah, I think we should. I think we should learn from this. I think we should want to imitate Daniel and his faith and his courage and his fear of God. Um, but we can't just stop there because that's not where the biblical narrative stops. Daniel serves a bigger purpose in the Word of God. Daniel's what we call a type of Christ or a foreshadowing of Christ. His, his main role in the narrative of the scriptures is to point us to Jesus. So Daniel had great wisdom, and we see it chapter after chapter after chapter. And we should seek to imitate what we see in Daniel. His wisdom, his faith, his courage, and so on. But 
ultimately, we should look to the one to whom Daniel points us. The, the one who is the wisdom of God in flesh. The full wisdom of God, Jesus Christ. The last main theme I want us to highlight is that of judgment. So, the destruction of the Babylonian kingdom is a judgment from God. It is a judgment that was first prophesied by Isaiah 150 to 200 years prior to this. Um, and then it materializes here in response to Belshazzar's mocking God. But um, we're not going to do this today, but you can look back. Isaiah 47 is where it is. And again, that's where it is foretold that Babylon's coming down. They were the great world power, but God had said then it ain't going to last. And uh, we see that materialize here. But a couple of things I want us to think about just from our passage in general. Number one is the swiftness of God's judgment. Now, granted, again, he was patient for a time, 150 to 200 years, right? I mean, that was a long period of time. And even the 70 years when his people were in captivity in Babylon, he was patient with the Babylonians. But while in other ways we can see his patience, we should see that for Belshazzar, his judgment was swift. He was mocking God by drinking out of the holy vessels. And if you look at verse 5, it says, immediately... The fingers of a human hand appeared and started writing on the wall. Um, what were the fingers writing? They were writing his judgment. And that very night, we see it later in the passage, his judgment came to pass. Sometimes God's judgment is swift. And this should lead us to urgency in sharing the gospel. Like Paul in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, after ministering the gospel, he says, Behold, now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Something must be done about this now. Don't let this opportunity pass you by. There was an urgency in what he was saying. And you know what? We are right to be thankful for God's patience with us. We are right to uh, walk in understanding of his patience with others. There are those that we pray for for long periods of time. There are those that we try to love on. There are those that we try to minister the gospel to. But we have to balance that with an urgency. I don't mean impatience but that there is an urgency to the gospel going forth because sometimes God's judgment is swift. And certainly for some, like it was for Belshazzar, his judgment will be swift. So we see the swiftness of God's judgment. Number two, we see God's glory in judgment. Again, God will not be mocked. Where God is not served, the kingdom will fall. And we should know that God is glorified not only in saving and preserving and caring for sinners, as we see with Daniel, as we see with God's people throughout the Scriptures, but God is also glorified in judging those who oppose Him. And we see that in the judgment on Belshazzar and on Babylonian kingdom. I've been... uh, reading through Exodus with a group of men on Tuesday mornings. For anyone that ever wants to come, you're welcome. We meet in the senior high room, 6.30 on Tuesday mornings. But uh, this is a prominent theme in Exodus. You know, we tend to think about Exodus as the place where salvation is on display, and it is, as God rescues His people from slavery. And there's so many parallels to our rescue from our slavery to sin. Um. But it is also true that judgment is on display. God was judging the Egyptians. God was judging Pharaoh. The plagues were judgments 
on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. And their ultimate judgment came when they were drowned in the sea. So God is glorified in saving His people from sin, but He's also glorified in judging sinners. God is glorified in heaven, where among other things His holiness, His justice, His grace, His mercy, His love are on display, but He's also glorified in hell, where His holiness, His justice, His wrath are on display. We talked a bit ago about... um, those in the church leaving the truth for a lie, and we may see this in uh, lesser issues now, although I don't think they're small, I don't think they're unimportant, but they're, they're lesser issues right now. But this is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. And if you're willing to fudge on some things over here, this is where you're definitely going to be willing to fudge in the end, because it just doesn't go down right. You know, I mean, God is glorified in the judgment of sinners. Some of you will remember Rob Bell if you've been around the church a while, but uh, he was a pastor in Michigan, and years ago he decided he couldn't uh, stomach the Bible's teaching on hell, so he just abandoned it. You know, just teach something else. He wrote a book called Love Wins, and that's where he kind of argued for it, is just saying, hey, in the end, love's going to win, and there's no one's really going to be punished. So you just wait. These people that are trying to tweak Scripture on some of these other pressing issues in the culture now, this is going to be where the rubber really meets the road. This is going to be where they really jump ship. Um, when the pressure heats up, this is where people are going to leave the faith. And this is, act- this is really where we have to count the cost. I mean, this is the thing that assaults our um, individualistic spirit more than anything is, no, you're accountable to God, and uh, all of your life is lived before Him. And it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And, and that is so countercultural. It is so not popular. But this is where we have to um, do the work in our own hearts to find out what do we really believe. Are we going to count the cost, and are we really with Him? And are we really going to follow him? Because this is where it's coming next, I guarantee it. Now to close, let me say this. We are all prone to desert the path of wisdom daily. To wander into folly. We have all failed to consistently live in the fear of God. We all deserve the judgment of God that was given to Belshazzar, and the Babylonians, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians before them. But the gospel, the good news is that God put the judgment that was due us on another. He put it on His Son. We are no better than the Egyptians or the Babylonians. We all deserve God's wrath and His judgment. But Jesus took what we were owed on the cross. He took the full fury of God's judgment, His wrath for our sin. He then rose from the grave and He now offers all who come to Him forgiveness of all of our sins and new life to be lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no safety outside of Christ. There's only judgment. But for all who are in Christ, those who believe in Him, there is no more judgment. He took it all. He was judged in our place for our sins. Now there is only grace, only mercy, only forgiveness 
Even the security of adoption into his family and those that God adopts, he keeps. It's raining. So how are we uh, supposed to respond? Well, with a life of gratitude to God. With Honestly, we ought to meditate on the judgments of God more. We ought to stop in those passages and think, this is right that He would do this. This is good that He would judge sinners. Sin is an affront to God. It is mocking God. It is a complete turning away from Him. And it is, it is justice that He would judge sinners. But what grace and kindness and love He's given to me. And unless we understand what we are owed, unless we understand the bad news, we can never comprehend the good news and never be uh, satisfied in it. But also a life of service and worship, a life of wisdom and the fear of the Lord, following Him wherever He calls us to go. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that You would take Your Word and minister to the hearts of Your people. Lord, um, I pray that You would teach us to fear You. I pray that You would teach us wisdom. I pray that You would uh, convict us and lead us away from folly. Lord, we confess that our, we are all prone to wander into folly and away from wisdom, and we have all failed to consistently fear You and walk in Your paths. But thank You, Lord. Thank you that you did not give the judgment that we were owed, but you gave it to Christ. Thank you that you've given us forgiveness and grace. And might this so grip our hearts that we cannot help to give it to another. With urgency, would you give us a compassion for the lost and uh, an urgency to minister the gospel. Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. We do have time for a couple thoughts or questions if anybody has anything. a way to communicate that that's helpful in a way uh, you know it still might be hated even if it's communicated in a helpful way but you know certainly we can learn how not to communicate in points of tension by just watching our culture currently Um, but I think you're right nobody wants to nail anything down they are Well, and what is it to love someone who's not on the path? I mean, part of it is what Daniel did with Belshazzar, which is saying, hey, this is truth, and and there is one God, and you owe Him worship and service, and you have refused. That's loving. 
that's a loving. Now we don't want to stop there. You know, we want to get to the good news and um, tell them the hope that there is for, because we've all done that. Uh, at the same time, we have to do. That's not real popular, you know, to tell the bad news. But we have to tell the bad news. No one's going to appreciate the good news if they don't understand the bad news. There was a neighbor friend. Uh, well, someone that I know very well and is not a believer, and they have a neighbor. And the neighbor came to, uh, he, my, this person that I know very well was working on his car, and um, neighbor came over and said, hey, I'll, you need some help? Yeah, you know, what do I owe you? And he said, if you'll let me preach to you for five minutes, you don't owe me anything. <laughs> He's like, deal, you know. And this guy just shared the gospel, but he shared it in the context of the bad news. And this person that I know very well came over and I saw him later that day. And I said, well, what'd you think from old brother Bob? You know, and uh, he said, well, I guess I'm not really afraid to die. I guess I'm really afraid of judgment. And I thought, mission accomplished. You know? <laughs> now, I know that brother Bob didn't stop there. I know that he told, but you know, that's an important and vital piece. If this person that I know is ever going to get the good news, he's got to understand that. He's got to come under conviction. There is a God, and I owe Him service and worship, and I have failed miserably to give it to Him. And that creates a humongous problem. <laughs> you know? Now, there is a solution to the problem, but if you don't understand the problem, you're not going to care about the solution. So, good stuff. All right. Carry on. Good day.